Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Politics with the Post Millennial. Uh, I'm Nico Johnson, and today we have the wonderful uh, Dr. Leslin Lewis, who is campaigning to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, and hopefully, fingers crossed, Prime Minister after that. Leslin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Nico, for having me. This is great. Yes, it is. So, in the last federal election, Andrew Scheer, I think, was criticised for failing to deal with social issues. And I think that manifest in the media and how the, particularly the establishment media, uh, relayed that to Canadians. It was, it was a project fear, I think, uh, in a way. You're also a social conservative. You've been fairly unapologetic about your social conservatism. How are you not going to fall into the same traps that I think Andrew Scheer did? Well, I, I would have fallen in already if I didn't navigate my way through it. I've had very tough interviews. And what I've done is just basically been upfront about who I am. And mm. I've just put it out there to the Canadian public that everybody has a belief. And what are we really saying about democracy when we're saying that some beliefs are um, more important than others and some should be recognized, others shouldn't. So I just put my beliefs out there and I also let them know that I'm a professional, that I've been in situations where I've had to represent all kinds of people in law and I've done so whether I believed in, in you know, what they step, what if they stood for the same thing as I did or not. And as a leader, that's what you have to do. You have 37 million people to represent. And you cannot be biased and just favor those people who think like you. And that's what our democratic process is about. It's about electing the right people and making sure that they always act in the best interest of all Canadians. And that's what I'm prepared to do. Yeah, but it's not necessarily about what view matters more, what view is more important. It's about electability. And the fact of the matter is that Conservatives need to win in places like the GTA, where of course you're from. And I don't know whether a leader can do that if they promise to invoke social Conservative policy. Well, I think the majority of people are social Conservative. The, it's just the way that it is packaged. Um, I think that, you know, the policies that I have invoked are very reasonable policies. I ask people, I say, do you believe uh, a woman should be forced into an abortion? I've never met one person that said that they should be. Yeah. These are very reasonable policies. And I think that the policy that I put forth in my no hidden agenda, the majority of Canadians can get behind. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. Um, why do you think Andrew Scheer lost the last election if it wasn't for his social conservatism? I don't think it was a social conservatism. I think that um, Andrew Scheer is a wonderful man, a great family man, very intelligent. And I think, I believe he listened to the wrong uh, advisors around him, uh, number one, and that he didn't come out and just tell people, this is who I am and I'm okay with who I am and, and you're gonna be, able to be who you are because this is a free and democratic society so i don't believe it was a social conservatism um i think that there are segments of the canadian population that we just haven't been successful in reaching as conservatives and we're going to have to do that if we are going to win the next election and a majority yeah and, and how do you plan on reaching those canadians well i think it's very important to be integrally in, in 
intricately um, immersed into certain communities and understand the dynamics of those communities, understand the, um, the community structure, what the needs are, um, and just the value system of the communities. And in the GTA, it's comprised of a lot of immigrant populations. And these individuals left their homes they came to Canada because of our Canadian identity, because of who we are, because of our values, what we stand for, democracy, freedoms, the ability to earn a living and work hard. And these are the values that my parents came here for. My parents, you know, often worked three jobs at the same time. And it wasn't because they were taking two jobs from someone else, it's because this country offered that opportunity where people could work and really get ahead. And I think that that is what we need to bring back to this country. And the majority of in, um, immigrants that came here for prosperity and for their future generations to prosper, they're going to buy back into that Canadian dream. And I, so I think that that's an important story to be told. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm one of the best candidates, the best candidates to be able to articulate that story. Yes, and I think your campaign has also been a breath of fresh air, as I've seen a lot of people say, you know, a shot of adrenaline into what's been a fairly stodgy conservative leadership campaign. And I think a large part of that, and, and there's a plethora of reasons, but a large part of that is because you're not a career politician. You've had a, quite a lot of experience outside of politics. But when it comes down to it, if you become leader, it's about passing legislation. It's about uh, passing conservative legislation in particular. How can you do that if you haven't had political experience? Is it going to be, or is it going to hinder you, do you think? It, it, that aspect is, is not a hindrance, absolutely not, because I am working with legislation all the time. I've taught in universities. I, I teach people how to practice law. Mm. I've practiced my own, on my own in my, in my own law firm, also on Bay Street. I've represented Canadian corporations internationally. Um, there's so much that I have done that, that has to do with legislation and the law. So that won't be a, a challenge. Um, I think what I have to get used to is just the fact, like, you know, even my de for debates, I insisted on preparing my own materials. And I'm so used to being hands-on and doing things myself and trying to get my authentic voice out there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to come to a point where you're doing so much that you're going to have to just concede and, 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 and get help um, in, in certain things that you want to do yourself. You're going to have to kind of let go of those things. And, you know, a lot of people say that the, even the way I answer questions, it's not scripted. It's, it's, you know, it comes from me authentically, and these are my policies. This is what I believe in. I didn't hire someone to write my policies for me. Uh, you know, I do them myself because this is just what I believe that Canadians truly want. They truly want these, these core conservative values that have the family as the cornerstone of society and recognize the importance of a vibrant e economy. Yeah, well, you talked a bit about the debates. Um... And I think another area where perhaps the lack of political experience uh, does appear was in those debates, arguably. And I think uh, in particular, it was seen in the French language debate. So you aren't the best at speaking French. Um, I'm hardly one to criticize because I, I live in Quebec and can't speak French. But how can you expect the Quebecois to vote for you in a federal election 
if you don't speak their language? Oh, they've been wonderful because I told them I was honest with them. I told them I only had 23 hours of French yeah. lessons and everybody tells me, don't say that because they'll be upset. And I told them the truth because I was embarked on this very, very strenuous uh, campaign where I carved out every hour possibly to learn French. And everybody told me, don't do the debates because I was only learning how to pronounce the words. Um, many of the words, I didn't really understand a lot of it. And even when the questions were being asked, I could only pick up one or two words and say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. But why did I do it? I did it out of respect for the French people. And I did it to show them that you have a right to, to have representation in your language. And I'm not there, but I'm going to do everything. And I'm going to give every ounce of my time that I have to, to being able to communicate and I'm going to work very hard. And so I, I went up there knowing that I couldn't speak the language and I did a debate, which was one of the hardest things that I did. But the French people have just been overwhelmingly um, like heartwarming that, that I did that. So I, I, I think it was a good call, even though everybody told me not to do it. Yeah. So I think, as I said, you've been a breath of fresh air and it's been wonderful to see your campaign excel. I think, and I've spoken to a few conservatives who are sort of in the Ottawa establishment about you and about your campaign. And universally, they seem to want you to be a part of the conservative movement or a part of the caucus, even if you don't win. So if you don't win, would you consider running to be an MP? Oh, absolutely. The impact that I've had and the people that I've reached, like it's, it's just so overwhelming to see that uh, the conservative message can be delivered um, unimpeded by, you know, a lot of the attacks and the false narratives that are pushed by the liberals. And I've had a lot of leeway to articulate the conservative message. And so people are so refreshed by that. I have people in rural areas in Saskatchewan that, um, you know, are just overwhelmingly in support of me. People having my sign on their pickup trucks and, you know, it, it just, it's just so over the, the support is just so overwhelming that I don't think I could um, walk away from this because there's so much more work that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Well, j just a, a short uh, digression. My friend who lives in Windsor, uh, Roberto Acor Cruz, who's our news editor here at the Post Millennial, uh, he was telling me that his church was actually handing out your leaflets uh, to all of the uh, sort of con congression, I suppose, is the, is the word for it. But anyway, I, forgive me. Um, moving on to policy, I was wondering, and I know you've, uh, you've written movingly about the subject, whether you believe the RCMP is systemically racist. Well, you know what, I don't have any data to study the RCMP. Um, what I do know is that police officers have a very difficult job and they wake up every day, put on their uniform to service. And I think that there are very good police officers, the majority of them, um, many of them are my friends. And, you know, there are bad ones. And they admit, even the good one admit, admits that there are bad ones there. And where there are bad ones, we need to weed them out. 
And where the system needs improvement, we need to work together in, in improving it. I do not believe in this narrative of defunding the police. I think it's a very, very important institution. Mm. Uh, without it, we would not be safe. And I think that, you know, I, I don't believe in throwing everything out because we have one or two bad in a group. I, I don't judge any group or any organization by that standard. And I don't think it's fair to judge the police by that standard either. Yeah, well, what reforms would you like to see with the RCMP? Would you say, uh, or would you advocate for body cams, for instance? I think body cams would be useful. I know that there's, there is a lot of skepticism on both sides of it, but I think what it does, it, it, it protects the um, citizens and also the police because there, are, there have been situations where people have um, been not fully uh, truthful about things that have happened and, and, and accused police of things too. So it works both ways. Uh, I think that it protects both parties. Yeah, okay. So earlier this week, or actually I believe it was two weeks ago, you called Trudeau's failed UN security bid a huge waste of money. Actually, I think you said, irregardless of whether he won or not, it was still a tremendous waste of money. I'm interested to know what your foreign policy would be if you did become prime minister. Would you want to cut foreign aid, for instance? Well, you know, I, I, I think that we would, uh, we have to think about a lot post-COVID because we, we just don't have the resources that we had before, uh, before COVID. And so there are things that, of course, I'm going to look for efficiencies in all levels of government. And there are things that I believe that, you know, that we, we probably should not be funding. But my fundamental belief about foreign policy is that good international policy begins at home. We need our own house to be in order. And there are certain things that I think that are top threats to, to our own security. And, you know, these include our, you know, our Canadian identity, our sovereignty, uh, ma maintaining a strong econ economy, uh, upholding our fundamental values, and restoring our respect in the international arena. Yes. Well, you talked about um, sort of restoring, I suppose, the, the safety of Canada, or at least the sovereignty of Canada. We have a hostile country who is impeding our sovereignty. And Canada has watched, and I think a lot of Conservatives are particularly irritated by this, we've watched our allies like Australia, like France, like Britain, like America, condemn and confront the Chinese regime for what they've done and and indeed it more of it's coming to light and yes in canada and in particular in the trudeau government you have ministers like patty hajdu who says that uh or responded to a journalist question about china foraging the uh, coronavirus data as a conspiracy theory and we found out that our foreign minister owed nearly a million dollars to the bank of china which is obviously owned by the chinese state we, the foreign minister also refused to name Taiwan, uh, I believe, in fear of the repercussions that would have brought uh, by the Chinese state. I think we really need to confront China, and it hasn't been done by this Trudeau government. What would you do to address the repeated, just, I, I suppose, total contempt for Canadian democracy by the Chinese regime? Well, I, I think that we have to, you know, 
let them know of that we uphold the rule of law and that we, you know, we are a society that respects the rule of law and democracy. And with China, we, we have a completely new reality. And even in our trade relations, we're no longer, you know, a collaborative trade partner. It's, it's more of an adversarial trade relations that we have. And so I think that our policies with China have to be completely um, revisited. And it's two aspects. It's, it's the, how we deal with them on issues of human rights and democracy, which we should continue to push them on. But we also have to reconsider our trade relations with them. We have a large trade deficit with, with China, and we import uh, far more than we're, we're producing. And there are many of our products that they have, uh, that they have you know, put sanctions on, and, and you know, including our agricultural and meat products. And so we, ha we need their markets to open to some of our products. And I think that we also have to um, you know, push China for transparencies on the human rights front. And you know, even the, the treatments of, of um, Hong Kong and, and Africans in, in China, there's been a lot of human rights uh, issues that have been raised. And I think that we have, to, we have to push on those fronts. Yeah, and would you say recognize Taiwan as a country? Well, I, I think that it's, it's something that the, the discussions definitely should be there. Uh, I, I think that chi Taiwan has given us far more accurate data for even COVID. And so our relationships with them, I think that we should have put more emphasis on the data coming out of places like, like Taiwan. And so these are discussions that we do, we do need to have. But China is, a, is an autonomous, independent, sovereign nation. And I think that it's important that we deal with them from a level of respect uh, and also recognizing that we have our own um, standards with respect to democracy and transparency and the rule of law and that we're not going to compromise those. Mm -hmm. You alluded a bit to Canada's national debt and it's reached an eye-watering or I suppose is expected to reach an eye-watering one trillion dollars. That sort of debt is generational. It, it hurts. It, it means that taxes will be raised for years. It, it, there's almost no coming back to that. It's something that needs to be addressed. Would you impose austerity measures in order to, I suppose, you know, shore up Canada's economy and attempt to restore the AAA credit rating? Well, I think that it's obvious that we are going to have to Im implement some efficiencies in order to make sure that uh, we are getting the best value um, out of every aspect of our government. And so it's, you know, we, we don't have a costed plan for COVID and that's a part of the problem. So even the numbers that we have, we have no means of verifying whether those numbers are real. And a government going in uh, and taking over may find you know a, a much even bigger deficit and a, and a big surprise and so we need a long-term plan I think that will deal with the deficit situation uh, we need a long-term plan to improve the economy that will have practical solutions that will cut red tape find efficiencies simplify you know our tax system and provide incentives for businesses to kickstart the economy Mm -hmm. What do you think, and again, this is a fairly broad question, so I do, I do apologize. 
Um, what do you think Justin Trudeau's legacy as prime minister will be? How will Canadians look back upon how he dealt with the pandemic, uh, how he dealt, for example, with the blockades, how he dealt with China? Do you think he's going to be considered a underwhelming prime minister? I don't think history will view him well. No? No, I don't. I don't think history will view him well. Um, there's been a lot of encroachment on our sovereignty. There are, we're seeing a massive regional discontent. We're seeing entire provinces, their economy just completely decimated through not international policies. I, I continue to tell people, you know, people will look to easy fixes like, oh, let's pull out of the Paris Accord and um, that will fix the problem. The Paris Accord is not responsible for legislations like Bill C-48 and Bill C-69. The, the effect to provinces like Alberta has been self-inflicted by national policies that have been implemented and invoked, which stifle our economy. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't think that, you know, when we look at policies like this that have been debilitating to our national growth and economic prosperity, I don't think history is going to view him well. Okay. Um, final question, and you touched on it. Uh, Western alienation is now a pretty significant force in Western Canada. Under the Trudeau government, and I think in part to his failure to construct pipelines, I think through equalization payments, we now have a large segment of the Canadian population who feel entirely disenfranchised from Ottawa. What can we do as Conservatives to restore that faith in the Canadian Confederation? Well, I don't think it's just Western alienation. Western alienation is something that's at the forefront right now because we, we, we're talking about, you know, the rise of the Brexit movement. But there's alienation in Quebec. There's, um, you know, alienation in amongst the Prairie provinces, the Atlantic provinces. Every region has something that they specifically feel is not properly and adequately being addressed. And so I think it's just very important to sit down with various um, you know, leaders in, in various regions and, and look at the causes of discontent, listen to these causes and try to find serious solutions. For example, when you take, uh, for example, Western alienation, we know that there's problems with, uh, you know, concerns about equalization. There's concerns about the riding sizes and the fact that, um, that there, are number, there are larger numbers of people in ridings in Alberta than in, in other provinces. We know that there's issues with, with the, the development of their natural resources. And so all of these things we have to look at at ways to solve them and they're complicated issues but i do believe that canadians are fair-minded people and that when we sit down and we talk about these problems that we can find solutions thank you dr lewis it's been such a pleasure thank you thank you